This is Ian Hartley. I'm Warren Kay. And I am Sasha Steenbergen. Welcome to the Rediscovering God podcast. We invite you to join us as we endeavor to see him more clearly, love him more dearly, and follow him more nearly. Discovering God podcast and dialogue today. There was a s- several t- times that the disciples seemed to have blinders on. They could not see or particularly understand what Jesus was saying. And so today we're going to look at some of those. Uh, Ian has done some very uh, cutting edge work and made a discovery that he is going to share with us today as we look at the truth that we could not understand. Ian? Thank you, Warren and Sasha. And, uh, you know, it's really uh, mind-blowing, as my friend Sasha would say. Uh, What worries me about this statement is that if your mind blows, your intelligence must decrease. So, <laughs> uh, it probably is happening, Ian. Um, so, you know, that Jesus' suffering and death was not expected by Israel in such a common era or AD. Like, um, we look back on Jesus' life and it just seamlessly goes into his death and resurrection and we we have no problem with it but the people who were alive when jesus was here on earth they had no expectation that jesus would suffer and die they saw jesus as a super solomon and that he would just extend the reign uh, of messiah over israel to gradually embrace the whole world that's the journey we're going to today every time jesus suffering and death is referred to in the new testament it is also stated just as it was predicted in the scriptures or some similar statement is made this is because the suffering and death of the messiah was not anticipated by the jews in jesus day the old testament passages which predicted his death were in plain sight but hidden because it was not what was wanted by the rabbis of the day. So there are none so blind as those who will not see. Uh, The spiritual blindness in this case was induced by the selfish desire for world domination, as hinted at by Solomon's reign. We see what we want, not the reality we need to see. So the statement, as predicted by the Old Testament or as predicted by the scriptures, is made by the writer or speaker to authenticate the suffering and death of Jesus as part of Messiah's mission. That the Messiah had to suffer was unbelievable for Jesus' contemporaries, and some authority was needed to establish its credibility. Now, I've said quite a bit there. Do either of you want to respond to that? Well, it's very evident that they just couldn't see it. And and yet you brought out, and we will look at passages where they will state that that we believe that the Messiah will live forever. And and Uh I had never really realized that that was their framework because it's so easy for us to look back after the fact, but they were right in the middle of it at the time with that view yeah let's read the passage you you're talking about that shows you that the crowd did not anticipate messiah suffering uh sasha if you read john 12 31 to 34 please 
The time for judging this world has come when Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. He said this to indicate how he was going to die. The crowd responded, we understood from scriptures that the Messiah would live forever. How can you say the son of man will die? Just who is the son of man anyway? So that's pretty clear. Thank you, Sasha. The crowd responded, we understood from scripture that the Messiah would live forever. How can you say the son of man must die? So it's not only the crowd, but one of Jesus' disciples, Peter. Uh, Peter did not anticipate Jesus or Messiah suffering and dying. Warren, do you want to read Matthew 16, 21, 22, please? From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day he would be raised from the dead. But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. Okay. It doesn't get plainer than that. Yeah. As Peter really believes this will never happen. I wonder what he thought had happened to Jesus. Uh, yeah, it, it was just totally out of left field. Even though he repeatedly told them this, they just could not take it in. Yeah. So even after his death, we have the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And even though Jesus has suffered and died, they can't believe that he's really Messiah because he suffered and died. Mm -hmm. Sasha, if you can read Luke 24, 19 to 21, please. What things, Jesus asked. The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles. And he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. Thank you. We had hoped oh. mm -hmm. he was the Messiah. So they've given up hope. Wow. So... Um, these three passages uh, indicate clearly that the concept of a suffering, dying Messiah was absent from Israel at this time in their history. And yet, at the same time, Jesus understands uh, that he's going to suffer and die. So here uh, are predictions uh, by Jesus of his imminent death. Warren, if you can read Matthew 16, 21 to 23. From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day he would be raised from the dead. But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. So um, Jesus uh, states very clearly that he's going to suffer and die. And when Peter says, no, this will never happen, Jesus recognizes that Peter is giving him the same temptation that the devil tempted him with. In other words, bow down, worship me, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. You won't have to suffer. So um, it, it's dawning on me that their perception of the Messiah was to solve all of their earthly problems. He, he says, you see things merely from a human point of view not from God's. God's perspective, we see now, was to solve the question of his character for the whole universe. Yeah. And, and even now, 
Christianity says that Jesus died to forgive us and not consider the question of his character in the whole universe. So even yeah. there, there's a misunderstanding uh, because of what we perceive we need. Yeah. And actually what happens um, in that kind of thinking is that what we're actually saying is God has the problem and Jesus is going to solve it. Not that the universe has a problem and Jesus solves it. Yeah. It's God has the problem that he can't forgive us unless Jesus dies. I, and this is it, the failure to take responsibility uh, for where the problem really is. I guess it's only natural to read scripture and hear things through our own needs. And it's hard to step back and see what God's need is. He, he, he has a crisis on his hands and he needs his character to be understood, not just by us, but by everybody that exists. So maybe this is what Jesus is thinking about in the Lord's Prayer uh, when he says, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah. But there's more. We must stick with the script. Sorry. Um, sorry. We've got a long journey. Yes. Um, Matthew 17 comes after Matthew 16. Now that's profound, isn't mm. it? <laughs> Sasha, read Matthew 17, 22, 23, please. After they gathered again in Galilee, Jesus told them, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. He will be killed, but on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. And the disciples were filled with grief. Okay, so we, we're moving uh, towards Jerusalem. We're not there yet, but we are in Matthew chapter 20. Warren, if you could read that, Matthew 20, 17 to 19. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside privately and told them what was going to happen to him. Listen, he said. We're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die. Then they will hand him over to the Romans to be mocked, flogged with a whip, and crucified. But on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. So this is the third account we have in Matthew, and they are paralleled in Mark and Luke about Jesus specifically talking to his disciples and telling them what's going to happen to him. And if they could have heard it, they would have heard that he would be raised again on the third day. Yeah. But they didn't hear any of it. No, well, and it, probably I was wondering if, if Jesus is the only one really that's raising people from the dead, if he's dead, like in their minds, like how, how is this guy going to get raised up again, you know? Like, it sounds good in theory, but no wonder they were grieving. Like, th to be told this, um, I was just thinking when I was a young adult living in Victoria, we had um, Pastor Manuel Silva, um, and he was very dearly beloved by all of us young adults. And we would all literally sit at his feet on Sabbath afternoons as we would dive into um, the word. And I just remember thinking, you know, this person is somebody that is leading us, you know, on a journey and the thought that he would ever die or leave us was preposterous. And he did, he died and, and we were, we were all grieving, but the idea that, you know, in, in this context with Jesus, I can really feel how they would not be able to take that news in. Uh, John does not record the sort of overt communication by Jesus about his death, but he records a few uh, hints, and he has one in John 12, verse 7 to 8. Um, it's a well-known story, and whose turn is it? Christ Thank said, you. leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. The disciples did not understand what Jesus was saying. So this is the context of the woman who um, anoints Jesus' feet with the perfume. And uh, 
Jesus makes this response when she's criticized by the disciples for wasting money. Leave her alone so that you may keep it for the day of my burial. But clearly the disciples did not understand that Jesus was going to suffer and die. I don't think they're stupid people. They don't, they're not able to hear this because uh, it doesn't uh, figure into their idea of the Messiah. It's like they're prevented from, from understanding this truth. And naturally, the first question that comes to my mind is, what can't I understand? What truth don't I understand? We'll come back to that and talk about it a little bit and make some suggestions later on in the podcast. Mm -hmm. um, so Jesus actually make statements about the predictions of the old testament of his suffering and death and his people around him that he's going to suffer and die so matthew 21 is the first one warren if you'd like to read that one please verse 38 to 45 but when the tenant farmer saw his son coming they said to one another here comes the heir to the estate come on Let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they grabbed him, dragged him out of the vineyard, and murdered him. When the owner of the vineyard returns, Jesus asked, What do you think he'll do to those farmers? The religious leaders replied, He will put the wicked men to a horrible death and lease the vineyard to others who will give him his share of the crop after each harvest. Then Jesus asked them, Didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is what the Lord's doing, and it's wonderful to see. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation that will produce the proper fruit. And anyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone it falls on. When the leading priests and Pharisees heard this parable, they realized that he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers. So here we get to understand what the stone is um, that Israel stumbled over. It was that Messiah suffered and died. Mm. They could not accept Jesus as Messiah, even to this day, uh, because he suffered and died. And their Messiah was going to live forever and he would never suffer and never die. That's a very interesting clarification that you've made because I never thought of it that way before. Yeah, that's good. Sasha, will you read Matthew 26, 50 to 56, please? Jesus said, my friend, Judas, go ahead and do what you have come for. Then the others grabbed Jesus and arrested him. One of the men with Jesus pulled out his sword and struck the high priest's slave, slashing off his ear. Put away your sword, Jesus told him. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. Don't you realize that I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us and he would send them instantly? But if I did, how would the scriptures be fulfilled that describe what must happen now? Then Jesus said to the crowd, Am I some dangerous revolutionary that you come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there teaching every day. This is all happening to fulfill the words of the prophet, uh, prophets as recorded in the scriptures. At that point, all the disciples deserted him and fled. Yeah, so um, yeah. Uh, in 54, how would the scriptures be fulfilled that describe what must happen now? And we're in the process of Jesus' arrest and trial and finally execution. And then verse 56 says, all this happened to fulfill the words of the prophets as recorded in the scriptures. So what Jesus is, is doing is he's authenticating what what's happening by saying to him, listen, this was predicted in the scriptures. They didn't get it, but Jesus got it. So we come now to the two disciples 
on the Emmaus Road again, here's the conversation that Jesus has with them. Luke 24, 25 to 27. Uh, Warren, if you want to read that, please. Then Jesus said to them, You foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. We're actually going to look through those uh, predictions that Jesus possibly used mm -hmm. to uh, try and show these uh, discouraged uh, disciples that this was all predicted. It had to happen. But the resurrection was also predicted. Sasha, continue the story in Luke 24, verse 32, please. And they, the two disciples, said one to another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us, by the way, and while he opened to us the scriptures? Okay, so they're so excited about what Jesus showed them. They rush back to tell the 11 disciples in Jerusalem. Remember, they were on the road to Emmaus, which is northwest of Jerusalem. So they get back. They're telling the disciples, the 11 disciples and some others that are congregated there. In Luke 24, verse 45 to 46, Warren, if you read that, please. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said, yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. Okay, so remember now, these disciples uh, have heard about the resurrection. They don't believe it uh, because it doesn't fit their paradigm for Messiah. And now these two from the Emmaus Road show up and they say, hey, guys, we've seen Jesus. It's alive and well. And uh, I can just imagine that the people in the upper room saying, oh, what are you guys smoking? You know, um, and then suddenly Jesus shows up himself. Must have been electrifying for them. Well, and, and the statement that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. I, I pray that my mind will be open to understand the scriptures because I've got blinders on too, I'm sure. And, mm -hmm. and, and yet only as God can open my mind can I really understand what he's wanting me to understand. And, and so here's this God that, you know, he, he, he opened people's ears he healed the lame, he, cl he, he cleansed the leper, all of these things, and now he opens their minds. And, and they didn't get it until at this point. And then they were so thrilled with joy that they went into Jerusalem just overjoyed. So the, Paul, the apostle, looking back on the suffering and death of Messiah, also authenticated the necessity of the suffering in his writings. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Sasha. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. You notice what it says. How Christ died for us, according to the scriptures. Hmm. So it's using the same literary uh, persuasive technique. And it, he gives the authority for believing that that was actually uh, part of the plan. Right. Yeah. And then 1 Corinthians 15, 4, the next verse, uh, repeats the, the pattern. Warren? And that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Mm -hmm. According to the scriptures, twice. And, of course, he tells them many other things about Jesus, but he doesn't say, according to the scriptures, for whatever else he tells them. He, he just reserves that authentication for 
when he, he suffers and dies and rises again. Because that was the part that was unbelievable. So now we're going to uh, do what you've all been looking forward to by this time, is which Old Testament scriptures that Jesus actually used mm -hmm. uh, to show that this had been predicted. Uh, and so we're going to go through, uh, I don't think this is exhaustive, uh, meaning that we got all of them, but we've got a good number of them that we're going to go through. So we're going to start off with Genesis 3.15. Sasha, if you can read that, please. And I, God, will cause hostility between you, the serpent, and the woman, Eve's children, and between your offering, offspring and her offspring. He, Messiah, will strike your head, and you, the serpent, will strike his heel. Thank you. So uh, what does it mean to strike uh, Jesus' heel? Well, probably uh, I've never heard anybody actually identify this as Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection. I've heard that... Um, that the serpent, the devil, would cause Jesus suffering, but never explicitly identified with his death and resurrection. I suppose some people have said that. Um, but usually the emphasis is on the destruction of the serpent because Messiah will strike his head. Now, the next one we're looking at is Numbers 21, 8 to 9. Uh, Warren, if you can read that, please. Then the Lord told him, make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. All who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. So Moses made a snake out of bronze and attached it to a pole. Then anyone who was bitten by a snake could look at the bronze snake and be healed. So here's the connection Jesus made uh, when he's talking to Nicodemus with this bronze snake. This is what Jesus says to Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. So like this is such an intriguing metaphor. You know, the, the snakes were the problem and a bronze snake is put on the pole. And if you look at the bronze snake, you heal from snake bite now here's the parallel jesus uh, took the problem we have which is our simple body nature inclinations and he lifted that human body up on the cross and when you look at jesus as your savior from all that's evil in your life you are healed it's a bit of a switch because usually you think of the serpent connected with the snake. I mean, the devil connected with the snake, but here it's Jesus. Yes, this is why context is so important. Yeah. Um, symbols can switch their meaning depending on the context. Yeah. Uh, you can't say that a serpent always represents the devil. Yeah, I remember the podcast that you did on that, and that really changed things and opened that understanding up for me. Mm -hmm. So we're on Psalm 16, verse 10 to 11. Sasha? For you will not leave my soul among the dead, or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. So Jesus picked up on this, I'm sure. You will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. Now, interestingly enough, the writer of this psalm, he did rot in the grave. <laughs> you know, <laughs> David died and was buried. Mm -hmm. And so he's not talking about himself. Although at the time, so we he probably didn't know who he was talking about. Yeah, yeah. This is the interesting thing about... Uh, these predictive prophecies um, did often the writers didn't know what they were talking about yeah especially this next one psalm 22 
There's just a lot in this song here. Warren, if you can read down from 11 to 14. Do not stay far from me, for trouble is near, and no one else can help me. My enemies surround me like a herd of bulls, fierce bulls of Bashan, have hemmed me in. Like lions, they open their jaws against me, roaring and tearing into their prey. My life is poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax melting within me. So this Psalms 22 is a wonderful, miraculous reflection of Jesus' experience on the cross. Yes. Um, you know, we, we know retrospectively that Jesus actually died of a literal broken heart. We know that because when the soldier put his spear in the side of Jesus to make sure he was dead, there came out these two uh, torrents of water and blood. We would say serum and hemoglobin, which means that the heart had physically ruptured and the blood was lying on top of the diaphragm and had time to separate out the hemoglobin from the serum. Uh, Sasha, if you can read from 15 to 18, please. My strength has dried up like sun-baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You have laid me in the dust and left me for dead. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes, closes in on me. They will have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. My enemies stare at me and gloat. They divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. You know, that they divide my clothes amongst themselves and throw dice for my clothing indicates that Jesus is dead. Mm -hmm. There's no more use for his clothing. Oh Lord, I'm reading 19 to 21. Oh Lord, do not stay far away. You are my strength. Come quickly to my aid. Save me from the sword. Spare my precious life from these dogs. Snatch me from the lion's jaws and from the horns of these wild oxen. David is very graphic in his description of the enemies of, God, of Jesus. It really speaks to the inspiration of this passage because there's no way that David would have known what he was really writing about. And yet, right. as you read it now, I mean, even as the disciples, they read it, they, some of them were observing the, the soldiers gambling for Jesus' garments, and, and they, it would have really made an impact on them. Except that they were so sure that he wasn't going to die, they probably weren't making the application. Oh, not then, after the fact. Yes, good. Mm. We are in Psalms 118 verse 22 to 23. We've run into this before. Jesus quoted this passage. Uh, Warren, if you'll read it, please. The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. Thank you. So the stone uh, refers to Jesus. And the builders rejected Jesus because he suffered and died. And that wasn't their paradigm for Messiah. And, uh, but then he became the most important stone, the cornerstone. We are in Isaiah 50, verse 5 to 6. Uh, Sasha, if you'll read that, please. Isaiah 50, verse 5 to 6. The sovereign Lord has spoken to me, and I have listened. I have not rebelled or turned away. I offered my back to those who beat me and my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mockery and spitting. Now, this is clearly with reference to Jesus' uh, torment and torture, and not specifically his death. Very accurate, isn't it? Yes, surprisingly so. So, Warren, if you can read Isaiah 52, and from there we're going to move seamlessly 
into 53. 53 verse 1. See, my servant will prosper. He will be highly exalted. But many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one could scarcely know he was a man. And he will startle many nations. Kings will stand speechless, speechless in his presence. For they will see what they had not been told. They will understand what they had not heard about. Who, is, who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in a dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. He turned our backs, we turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Thank you. Um, I just want to look at that uh, verse 14 of chapter 52. It says, his face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. That's how bad the torture was. It almost um, makes the movie... Uh, the passion sound like it wasn't uh, horrific enough. Yeah. Um, verse 2 and uh, verse 2, my servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. Like a root in dry ground uh, means there's not much hope of it surviving. If you think of the early life of Jesus, uh, Herod killing the baby boys in Bethlehem, the long journey to Egypt, living in this foreign country. That journey was also full of danger. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. You know, when Judas brought the band of soldiers to arrest Jesus, he couldn't say, it's the tall man or the short man or the good-looking man, or the man with nice long hair. Jesus was so ordinary that Judas had to say to them, it's the guy I embrace. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. My response to that is shame on me. Having grown up in countries uh, with the surfeit of beggars on every street corner, I'm an expert at looking away and not seeing what's actually happening. Uh, Sasha, if you can read from verse 4 down to verse 5. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. Thank you. Verse 6, uh, <clears throat> Warren. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep his, is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. Thank you. What is this business of Jesus going quietly to his death? Why, why is this mentioned? Well, it certainly is a fulfillment of what he said in Matthew 5, 48 or 43, not to resist an evil man. Yeah, he does not resist his tormentors mm -hmm. and his executioners. This is symbolized by Jesus uh, going quietly like a sheep. Notice it says uh, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And in Revelation, 
uh, he is the slaughtered lamb in chapter five, not sacrificed. Sacrifice uh, was a very gentle way of putting a person to death. You know, they would just open the artery and let the blood leak out of the animal. Yeah. And it soon lost consciousness. It wasn't a slaughter. So Ian, um, I, I can hear those that believe in penal substitution, quoting verse six, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. How do you explain that in another way? I remind you that the Old Testament writers viewed everything supernatural as coming from God. So the fact that Messiah would die under these painful circumstances, uh, this wasn't normal or natural. It's supernatural. And so it's attributed to God. Right. A good reminder. So it was really the devil, but it gets attributed to God. Yeah. So do you think then that they just didn't read I mean, that they knew these passages, but they just didn't read these in the sermons, so to speak, in Jesus's day or, you know, before Jesus's day in um, in the temple when they would. And, and I'm even thinking of like all the the young scholars who had to learn all the passages by memory and that that, you know, they knew this kind of stuff. So. Did they just know it as information, but not in any way applicable or that this would actually happen? You know, when you're an adolescent and you're reading uh, stories, like Old Testament stories, there's a lot of stuff you don't get. You, mm -hmm. you just read over it because you, you don't really know what it's talking about. Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, like early in Genesis, it says, and Adam knew his wife in King James language, and she became pregnant. So that doesn't make any sense to you as a young person. So you just, yeah, I think that's what's happening here with Jesus suffering and death. Uh, they just can't grasp that this could happen. So they kind of, they read it, but they don't grasp what it's actually saying. I mean, it sounds to me like, a lot of scripture that I have read over, you know, the course of my life. And it's only when you guys started decoding uh, the word, did any of it start coming alive and making sense. And, you know, it's like, you know, for you guys teaching what you're teaching, it's like, we're the disciples on the road to Emmaus, you know, and we're, <laughs> we're getting scripture explained and we're understanding, you know, and it's like, that's why we get excited because it's it's becoming clear, right? So, of course, we're the ones now who are like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> Our hearts start to burn within us. Yes, yes, exactly. I was going to say uh, my mind's getting blown, but I don't want to <laughs> I don't want my intelligence to go down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Warren, we finally cured that. <laughs> <laughs> So we, we're going to read um, a few more verses in Psalm 22, and then we'll move to Daniel 9. Read for 8 and 9, please. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. No, you, you can't miss it now that you know it, what this is talking about. His life is cut short. He dies without descendants. He was struck down. He was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. I mean, he's dead. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's a contrast there in the last two lines. On the one hand, he's buried like a criminal, but on the other hand, he's put in a rich man's grave. Criminals wouldn't be put in rich man's graves. Well, having a stab at it meant he was honored uh, in the way he was, uh, where he was placed. Mm -hmm. So 
he's buried like a criminal. He is a criminal in the eyes of the Romans right. and the eyes of the Jews. Um, so he would have been just thrown on the trash heap in Gehenna. Yeah. Uh, um, but he's placed in a rich man's grave. Because some rich men were starting to understand what he was all about, and they wanted him to have more a more honorable burial than what a criminal would have. And this is what uh, the woman's perfume predicted. See, when she pours that perfume on his feet, um, she's honoring him. She's treating him like a rich man. Yes. And this is prophetic of what uh, Nicodemus and uh, who was the other guy? Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea, uh, how they would treat Jesus in his death. Yeah. Uh, you know, the book of Daniel has uh, a reference to the death of Jesus, and Jesus quoted from Daniel, so he knew about Daniel. Um, Sasha, if you can read that, please. Uh, Daniel 9, 26 and 27. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. Thank you. I'm going to stop you there uh, because the rest is complicated and I don't want to spend time on it in this podcast. So the anointed one will be put to death. So the word Christos or Messiah, that's the Greek and the Hebrew for anointed one. Mm. That's what it literally means. Mm. And what does that mean, the anointed one? Well, who did they anoint? They anointed kings, uh, they anointed prophets and mm. priests. So the anointed one is clearly referring to Messiah in retrospect. Yeah. It will be put to death. Now we come to the Jonah. <laughs> uh, we did uh, talked about the sign of Jonah a few podcasts ago. And um, just take chapter one from verse 17 to 2 verse 10. And I'll just read this nonstop and catch all the allusions to the death of Jonah, which is prophetic of the death of Jesus. Sasha, if you can read that, please. Jonah 1.17 to 2.10. Now the Lord had arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from inside the fish. He said, I cried out to the Lord in my great trouble, and he answered me, I called to you from the land of the dead, and Lord, you heard me. You threw me into the ocean depths, and I sank down to the heart of the sea. The mighty waters engulfed me. I was buried beneath your wild and stormy waves. Then I said, O oh Lord, you have driven me from your presence, yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. I sank beneath the waves, and the waters closed over me seaweed wrapped itself around my head i sank down to the very roots of the mountains i was imprisoned in the earth whose gates lock shut forever but you O lord my god snatched me from the jaws of death as my life was slipping away i remembered the lord and my earnest prayer went out to you in your holy temple those who worship false gods turned their backs on all god's mercies but I will offer sacrifices to you with songs of praise, and I will fulfill all my vows, for my salvation comes from the Lord alone. Then the Lord ordered the fish to spit Jonah out onto the beach. You know, I can't help but say it again. When Jonah was in the stomach of the fish, he knew he was dead. Mm -hmm. I mean, with those gastric juices and... Uh, movement of the stomach and the seaweed wrapped around him he did not have hope yeah that you O oh lord snatched me from the jaws of death mm -hmm. 
that um, when I first read that, that made me think of the uh, verse that talked about um, snatching the stick out of the fire. Um, and, and that one, you know, just has very vividly stuck in my mind. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's in Zechariah chapter three. Anything else you want to say on Jonah? It's okay, awesome. we're on Zechariah. Warren? Then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the family of David and on the people of Jerusalem. They will look on me whom they have pierced and mourn for him as for an only son. They will grieve bitterly for him as for a firstborn son who has died. So this is clearly a, a prediction of the death of someone of the line of David. Now look on me whom they have pierced. And in the next chapter, uh, chapter 13 of Zechariah, verse 6 to 7. Sasha, if you can read that, please. And if someone asks, then, what about those wounds on your chest? He will say, I was wounded at my friend's house. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, the man who is my partner, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered and I will turn against the lambs. Thank you. I was just saying that's quite a list of passages that predict that the Messiah is going to suffer and die. It is. And as I said at the beginning, uh, I'm not sure that it's exhaustive. There are probably others. So what conclusion shall we make? Well, it's not difficult to understand these predictions of Messiah's suffering, death, and resurrection after the fact. Yeah. And part of the genius of Jesus is that he could discern these predictions prior to their occurrence. Mm -hmm. This is all the more noteworthy since none of his contemporaries were able to do so. Now, I remind you that prediction does not mean causation. We kind of bantered that sentence around a few times, yeah. Predicting that I will be dead in 25 years does not mean I'm planning euthanasia. My prediction is based on statistics concerning longevity. The Old Testament prophets wrote under inspiration. They often did not understand the predictive power of their own writing. It is unlikely that David knew when he wrote Psalm 22, that would be a messianic prediction of Jesus' suffering on the cross. What do you think? Do you agree with that? Yeah. yeah. The statements in the New Testament about the prediction by the Old Testament of Jesus' suffering and death are to authenticate the necessity of his suffering and death. This was necessary because the idea that Messiah would triumphantly reign was so ingrained that Christ's suffering and death was a stumbling block to receiving him as Messiah. So it seems to be now, after looking at the evidence, that many people gave up their hope in Jesus as Messiah uh, when he was arrested and tortured and finally executed. And that's epitomized by the disciples on the Emmaus Road and the 11 disciples. They really couldn't get it that uh, Jesus was Messiah if he suffered and died. Too big of a reframe for them to try to fit everything into its place if, if he died. Like, how, how does that work? Because to them, mm -hmm. the, the new kingdom was to be seamlessly put into place. There was no gap, which we get in Revelation, which they didn't have. Uh, yeah, you know that uh, the... Uh, eschatology the study of end time events the end of the world the future um, in in isaiah is quite different to revelation yeah. isaiah's idea of the lamb and the lion getting along well uh, and children living to a hundred and still being children and all that kind of thing um, heaven for them was an earth that uh, evolved under Messiah's leadership into this place of peace and harmony. Whereas in Revelation, uh, following Jesus' lead, 
this earth cannot be rehabilitated. Uh, it cannot be uh, restored like uh, an old car. Our bodies and the planet itself have to be completely changed. And that's different to what our Jewish friends believed and believed. So we come back to the question we uh, posed right near the beginning. What predictions in the scriptures are we blind to in our time because of our selfish desires? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, we too, I think I speak for the two of you, want to avoid suffering and enjoy prestige and position. That very fact is going to close our understanding up. I covered ears that hear, eyes that see, and a mind that can understand what the spirit is trying to teach us mm -hmm. through the scriptures. So I got to thinking about maybe some areas of blindness. And here's the problem. I can't think of them for myself. <laughs> I mean, that's, uh, I need help in this area. But there are some ideas that other people hold that I can see very clearly from scripture that they're based on their wishes and not on the evidence of scripture. So let me give you one. Um, some Christians believe in the rapture, in which case believers are taken to heaven so they do not have to experience the troubles of the last days. And they feel very strongly about that. And why do they want a teaching like that? because they don't want to suffer at the end of the world. Mm -hmm. Then we have uh, the idea that God needs a last generation of people uh, who are going to be translated. They need to become perfect so they can be translated. So there's a, they create a different uh, standard for them. And then Jesus does not come because he doesn't have enough perfect people. Um, and so um, the idea is that that last generation of people actually become the savior of the world because until they are perfect, Jesus cannot come. Mm. Can you see how arrogant that is when you, yeah. when you look at it like that? Yeah. I mean, it sounds so pious and so um, committed mm -hmm. and dedicated to say, well, we all need to quit sinning. And then Jesus, or at least some of us need to quit sinning so that Jesus will come. Now, I think, well, let me speak for myself. I'd like to stop sinning, you know, and uh, I sort of, when I was young, thought, well, probably by the time I'm 60, I'll quit sinning. <laughs> I don't want to quit just yet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Well, 60 was a long time ago for me. And nobody has hinted that I may have stopped sinning. <laughs> 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 At least neither of you have. <laughs> so, um, well, I just felt that it uh, put a lot of pressure uh, because... You know, I did have friends who spoke with me, you know, very concerned about the idea that we need to become perfect before Jesus comes. And I remember the feeling that this heavy, heavy weight on me, realizing, you know, I wasn't going to be able to help Jesus come sooner because I wasn't going to be able to be one of the people who was going to be perfect. And if he did come, well, he certainly wouldn't be coming to get me. Uh, thankfully, there would be some perfect people hopefully ready for him, but it, it just felt very heavy and also sealed my fate in the sense that I wouldn't be, if I was alive then at that time, I wouldn't be going. So there are two people that we know of that were translated, I mean, apart from Jesus. And we do know that he, he took some people who had been resurrected with him to heaven. Well, there's Enoch and Elijah. Now, usually the story about Enoch is told this way, um, that Enoch used to walk with God, 
And they did this and walked longer and longer. And eventually God said to him, well, you know, we're closer to my house now. Why don't you come home with me? <laughs> okay, so like the, the implication is that uh, Enoch got more and more perfect and finally reached a point where God just took him. But the problem is Elijah. Mm -hmm. right. You know, this, this guy... Uh, he slaughters 450 prophets of Baal. He, he goes into a blue funk. He's suffering from post-traumatic stress. He runs down into the Sinai desert, hoping to see God where Moses saw him. And uh, God says to him, you've, you've wiped out your usefulness. Anoint people in your place. And uh, I'm taking you home. Elijah is the last one you would expect to be translated if you translated on the basis of perfection. His robes were still stained with the blood of the prophets he had slaughtered. Yeah. So, you know, we all, it seems to me, we all come to Jesus for legalistic reasons. We, we want to escape hell and gain heaven. And uh, we just hope that we can somehow um, partially earn our own salvation. Uh, and if you talk to people who are theologically very naive, maybe even ignorant, they all believe uh, that it's good people that go to heaven. You know, you, um, I was baptized at the age of 13. And I've mostly been happy I was baptized. But occasionally I've had people say to me when I was younger, and you're supposed to be baptized. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And then I was sorry I was baptized. <laughs> um, legalists believe they need Jesus' help uh, to obey the law. But in the subtle small print, of a legalist's uh, agreement with God is that uh, they will need Jesus less and less as they become more and more morally advanced. Mm -hmm. You know, I've even seen graphs that show you need less of God's grace uh, the longer you are obedient to God. And legalists don't believe they save themselves. They believe they just help God a little bit. You know, mm -hmm. their slogan is God helps those who help themselves. I have to say it took me a long time um, to give up uh, my belief in myself in terms of getting better and better. So finally I make it. Now I know uh, the closer I get, the worse it seems. And this is the witness of every uh, truly skillful person or intelligent person. Those that are really good at what they do know that they come so far short of perfection um, that they often despair. He really is our Savior doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Yes. Thank you. Amen. Thank you. That's what a Savior is. Yeah. And while Jesus helps us, he's primarily our Savior. So thank you. We've covered a lot of material. Mm -hmm. And uh, it needs uh, some time to sink in and marinate and be digested. And uh, let's pray together. Mm -hmm. um, dear God, you are so patient. Um, you tell us things just straight up and we don't get it and you don't condemn us you just come in other ways to try and help us understand you're wonderful we worship you
You will find the PDF document that we're following today on our website, rediscoveringgod.ca, where the recordings, the PDFs, the podcasts are all listed there. You can share that website with your friends and they can follow along. We'd also really love to invite you to the Monday night Zoom discussion where we all gather in fellowship with each other, all us listeners of the podcast, where we can come with our questions, comments, thoughts, um, resources. It's a wonderful time of encouragement where um, we get to affirm each other and encourage each other. Um, so that's a Monday nights at 7.30 Mountain Time. You can just type in 403-506-9201. And we'd love to have you there.